Will you turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews 13, Hebrews chapter 13. And if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, we want you to be able to follow along. So, Larry and Jean have Bibles. They're going to make their way down the aisle. Get their attention. They'll get a copy of the Bible to you. And it's marked at Hebrews 13 so that you can follow along. And today we complete our study of the book of Hebrews. We are two weeks shy of one year looking at this book. Completing Hebrews today, the next three Sundays during this hour, will be ministered to by our assistant, our associate pastor, Matt Owen, and then the following week, Brother Zach Hamilton, and the week after that, Brother Larry Castle. And then on September 5, we'll begin a new series in the book of Proverbs titled, Living Wisely in a Foolish World. So we complete Hebrews today. A few years back, there was a book written called Exit Interviews, and it was about people who had given up on church involvement. In it, the author estimated that, quote, 53,000 people leave churches every week and never come back. And the author thinks that's okay, because he says that these folks have, quote, become quite resourceful at finding ways to meet God apart from a local church. And he goes on to say that those leaving the church behind have often found what he calls a, again, quote, better way. He notes that, and again quoting, quite often they describe themselves as moving closer to God, but further away from the church. Now that's a sentiment that is often heard in our culture. I'm okay with God, I just don't need the church. In another book called Habits of the Heart, Robert Bella, the author, examined American society to find out what makes it tick. He was especially interested in American belief systems, and he made some interesting discoveries. One of the people he interviewed had this to say, I believe in God. I can't remember the last time I went to church, but my faith has carried me a long way. Now, although that kind of thinking, that the church is optional at best, though it's common today, it's foreign to the New Testament. Just a a cursory reading of the New Testament debunks the notion that individual Christians simply stake out on their own without the camaraderie and the fellowship and the accountability of the body of Christ, the church. You see, this teamwork as opposed to individualism, is throughout your New Testament. Now, I don't have the screen that I normally have when I speak and show you additional verses, so you'll just have to listen as I give those to you. But in Philippians chapter 1, it's just one example. Philippians chapter 1 and verses 3 through 6. And at the beginning of that letter, from Paul to a church in the city of Philippi, he says this to those believers. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your, and here's the phrase, because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. 
Now notice that phrase. I thank God because of your, you Christians at the church at Philippi, I'm thankful for your partnership in the gospel. That word that's translated partnership is a word that some of you have heard, a Greek word, koinonia. It means it's often translated fellowship. In fact, your New Testament was written, yes, in Greek, but in a particular type of Greek. At the time of the New Testament, there was something called classical Greek, but then there was koine Greek. Koine Greek was the common Greek, the common language that everyday folk spoke. And your New Testament was written in that. Now, it's called koine for this reason. Koine, or koinonia, means to share, to have in common. And that's the word that's used here. We have a common partnership, fellowship in the gospel. It's sometimes translated participation. And so the people to whom that was written, Philippians 1, normal, everyday Christians at the church in Philippi, they're called partners, active participants in the furtherance of the gospel. And you see this throughout the New Testament, that everyday followers of Christ are indispensable and active team members in seeing the work of the Lord move forward. Not independent contractors doing their own thing. But people brought together in fellowship, in partnership, in participation, having in common the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the mission to which He has called us. Now one of the places that you see this very kind of thing, God's people as partners in this enterprise called the gospel, the biblical mission, advancing the Lord's work. One of the places you see that is one that we too often overlook. It's at the end of the books of the New Testament. Now many of you know that the books in your New Testament, most of them are actually letters. Letters that were written to churches or individuals. And they have these common characteristics of letters that were written in that day. And many of those features are like letters that we have today. And so the letters will often, most of the time, start out with a a greeting. They'll start out with to whom it is addressed, the recipients. And who is writing it, the, the author. And then there'll often be a report of prayer and thanksgiving for the people to whom the letter is being written. And so in Philippians 1 that I just read, that's a report of how Paul prays for those folks and how he thanks God for those folks. And then you'll have the body of the letter. That's the bulk of it. And then at the end, you have the conclusion and a benediction. Now, it's the end of those letters. It's those conclusions and those benedictions that we often skip over. The bulk of the letter is, of course, the body. And that's what we focus on. But we can easily skip over the beginning and the end of the letters. And those beginnings and those ends give us important insight into how Christians operated in New Testament times. Now, I say all that for this reason. Today, we're at the end of a New Testament letter. And it would be easy to simply say we're done. Because all the important stuff in the body of the letter has already been been covered. And so these concluding verses, we could see them as just some cleanup work that the author is doing before he signs off. 
So, as he signs off, give my love to so-and-so. Say hey to so-and-so. Let's do lunch sometime. And you find these kinds of, these kinds of references. Say hello. So-and-so greets you. But then there's some appellation, you know, some explanation often as to what's going on in, in that person's life. And it's an indication of the kind of partnership that people had together in this enterprise called the gospel, the Lord's work. And so we want to, as we look at the end of the book of Hebrews, not skip over that. And in fact, we're going to look at another passage or two at the end of some other letters in your New Testament to see just how informative these conclusions and benedictions can be for us with regard to our partnership in the gospel. And so in the outline that we have for you, that's inserted in your program, we have the take-home truth listed there, saying this, that genuine believers are just common people who have uncommon problems, but who share a partnership in the Lord's work. And we want to see that at the end of Hebrews chapter 13. Let's ask the Lord's help as we do. Our Father, we thank you again that we can come together as your people for these sacred moments. And Lord, we ask you to help us as we look into your word at the end of this marvelous letter. And help us, Lord, to see there what you have called us to, what you, throughout the history of your church, 2,000 years now, you have called your people, common, ordinary, everyday people, to be involved in. May it motivate us, Lord, to give ourselves anew and afresh to the work to which you have called us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We look at verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 13. Brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. I want you to see four things from the end of this letter that apply to God's people at all times. And one is, and we have it listed in your outline, that partners in the gospel, which we are, encounter problems. Notice verse 22 is, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. I've written you only a short epistle, a short letter. Now I say here that partners in the gospel encounter problems, and I say that for this reason. The author of Hebrews is saying that I have written this letter to you, and I'm asking you, and I'm urging you to, to bear with it, to, to listen to it, to give thought to it, and in turn to obey this word of exhortation that I've given you. Now, I say partners in the gospel encounter problems for this reason. The letters in your New Testament are all what are called occasional documents. Now, what does that mean? It means that the letters were written for a particular occasion, for a particular reason, and that's why they're called occasional documents. Every one of the letters in your New Testament was written to address something that was going on in the life of that individual or in the life of that particular church to whom the letter was written. 
And so they're called occasional documents because they're written to address the occasion. And as you look at the letters of your New Testament and the things that occasioned those letters, brought them about, caused the author to put pen to parchment, to send it to them, those things were almost invariably problems. Problems that needed to be addressed. And so let me bounce through some of the letters in your New Testament and show you that indeed those letters were written as occasions to address issues that have arisen, whether doctrinal issues or moral issues, whether how to believe or how to behave. So you have the letter that we call the Book of Romans, written by Paul to the church at Rome. And it's clear that one of the purposes, one of the things that occasioned that letter was that there was tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in the church at Rome. And so Paul goes to give this marvelous treatise on what the gospel is. And you notice how many times in the letter to the Romans he says, to Jew and Gentile alike. The gospel applies. There's the letter to Corinthians. Both, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. (laughs) Problems in Corinth? My goodness. And so there are divisions, Paul says, among you. Quarrels and factions. He says that it's so bad, chapter 6, that you're taking each other to court. Lawsuits against one another. There's divorce and and remarriage in a a rampant way, chapter 7. There's the issue of our our, uh, relationship to the culture, chapters 8, 9, and 10. There's the issue of how we should carry on with the Lord's Supper, that is, communion in chapter 11. There's the issue of how we should handle spiritual gifts, chapters 12, 13, and 14. There's the issue of whether or not the resurrection has really happened, chapter 15. Other than that, this was a great church. It's an occasional document written to straighten out their problems, doctrinal and behavioral. The second letter to the Corinthians is a defense of Paul's ministry to them. They had been deceived by some who said, Paul is not all he's cracked up to be. And if you read the second letter he wrote to that church, it's Paul defending his ministry to them. The book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6 says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and you're turning to a different gospel. It goes on to say in chapter 3, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? And so what's the occasion? False teachers have come. And they've said this gospel of liberty and freedom and grace that Paul preached to you is not all there is. It has to be made complete by your effort, by what you do. Philippians, from which we read a bit ago had selfishness within it. Chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in love consider others better than yourselves. They had anxiety, worry. Chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, be anxious for nothing. Colossians, the letter to the church, Colossae. They had been infiltrated by a heresy, a false teaching called Gnosticism, that said the knowledge of Christ is good, but it's not enough. 
You have to have this extra knowledge. And we, the knowers, the gnosis, thus Gnosticism, we're the knowers. We have this knowledge. You have to get it from us. Paul addresses that then. And that's the occasion of the letter. Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 of Colossians. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Thessalonians, though they were a model church, they had issues with the, the second coming. Some had said it's already happened and people were shaken in their faith because of that. And there were folks who refused to work because they said Jesus is coming back anyway. Why bother? And Paul, who wrote the letter, had to address that. Timothy was fearful when Paul wrote to him, and he needed to have his courage summoned to receive the mantle of leadership that the great apostle was ready to hand to him. You see that throughout then these letters. They're occasional documents. And that's the case with the letter that is the book of Hebrews as well. It certainly addressed doctrinal issues, that is, proper belief about Christ and the temptation to turn away from the truth about Christ. Five times the writer of Hebrews warns against turning away from the truth about Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 6, in chapter 10, and at the end of chapter 12. But it also addresses practical human level issues. And that's why if you look at verse 20 of chapter 13, it says, may the God of peace. Now, Paul normally doesn't refer to God as the God of peace. He certainly is, but this is in his letters, or excuse me, the, the New Testament. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews. But this is something that's not normally referred to in your New Testament, the, the God of peace. And yet here it is. Why is that? Well, here's probably why. They apparently were having horizontal level person-to-person -person kinds of problems among them. In fact, that's in all likelihood the reason that in the verses just before this, in chapter 13, in verse 7, it talks about remembering your leaders. In verse 17, it talks about obeying your leaders. The reason for that is apparently that there was friction between the people in the church, and particularly between the people and their leadership. And so, may the God of peace, the God who gives peace not only to us individually, but peace in our relationships as well. Who through the eternal blood, verse 20, of the, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. And that's why the leaders in verse 24 are specifically mentioned. Greet all your leaders. What the writer is trying to emphasize is there should be harmony amongst God's people among the people in the church, and also among the leadership to the people. And so there are these issues that occasion the letters that are your New Testament. And Hebrews is no different. And that's why I say partners in the gospel encounter problems. You all get that? Do you see all the kinds of problems that are addressed in your New Testament? Now here's one of the things that that should mean for you and for me then. You should never say, you know, I don't think I can be a part of that church. I don't think that I can actively participate and be in partnership with the church. I'm not good enough. <laughs> Are you kidding? 
Do you see what we have in the New Testament? How great are these people? I know how great you all are. You know how, how great I am. Not so hot. And so none of us should say, I can't be a part of that because I'm not good enough. In fact, the very first thing you have to do in order to be a member of the church is to say, I'm not good enough. In order to come to Christ, the very first thing that you have to realize is you're not good enough. And so throughout the New Testament, you see partners in the gospel who create and who encounter problems of all sorts. We should never say, not only that I can't be a part of that because I'm not good enough, but I also can't get close to or participate with those people because they've got issues. You know, if you ever find a church that does not have issues, do not join it because you will mess it up immediately. <laughs> right? And of course, there is no such church, is there? There was no such church in your New Testament. There has been no such church in the 2,000 years since. And this church is no exception to that rule. Partners in the gospel encounter problems. And so in verse 22, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. I have had to write to you and exhort you. Why? Because you have problems. Because you have the very real temptation to wander from the truth that you have heard about Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 22, it says, I have written you only a short letter. You say, we spent a year. A short letter, but it's 13 chapters. And you can, at a just normal pace, read those 13 chapters in one hour. And when you consider the gravity and the depth of the issues that are discussed in the book of Hebrews... It really is, in light of that, a short letter. Or if you consider one of the commentaries written on Hebrews by John Owen, comprises 3,500 pages. And so it is a short letter considering the gravity of the issues involved. Partners in the gospel encounter problems. That's you and me. Secondly, partners in the gospel suffer predicaments. Verse 23. I want you to know... That our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see. So partners in the gospel are apparently, according to the end of this letter, and you see it at the end of many, most of the New Testament letters. You have people mentioned who are in circumstances often very difficult, predicaments. In this case, Timothy has apparently been in prison. And the author is informing the readers that Timothy has now been released. Now, we have no idea. The New Testament does not tell us why it was Timothy was thrown in prison, where he was thrown in prison, or for how long. All we have here is the fact that he was and he has now been released. It is undoubtedly because of the same reason that Timothy's associates were from, as we read in the New Testament, put in prison. And that is preaching the gospel of of Christ, suffering for the gospel of Christ. And so you hear, have here hinted at the partnership that these readers are assumed to have with Timothy and those who are going to far-flung places to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and even suffering for it. 
Now, notice in the take-home truth in your outline. I say genuine believers are common people. We're going to see that in some detail in a moment. They're common people, but notice, with uncommon problems. The reason I say uncommon problems is because being put in prison for preaching the gospel is not something that happens to everybody. It only happens to those who are actively involved in the Lord's work. It certainly does not happen to worldlings. It does not happen to those who are outside of Christ. And in fact, when you come to Christ, the Bible warns that you will encounter problems that other people don't have. Did you know that? You will have the problem of, now I am a follower of Jesus. And all of the consequences and derision that can go with that. And depending on what time and place you live, that may include physical abuse, as it did in New Testament times. If it's not physical abuse, it may be verbal scorn, or maybe just the cold shoulder. Jesus warned of relational issues, that those who will follow me are going to have often divisions within families because of me. And so those who are partners in the gospel suffer predicaments and often uncommon predicaments. Just a couple of months ago, in June, there was the Arab American Festival in Dearborn. And I was able to go on Friday evening and be at a meeting in a basement of a, of a retired couple that lives in Dearborn for the purpose of trying to reach Muslims with the gospel. And there were about 20 of us in that basement meeting. And there was a time of strategizing for how to reach uh, the Muslim people in Dearborn with the gospel of Jesus. And at the time that we were planning that, we prayed for the festival that was going on that night and was going to go on the next day. But at the time we were having that meeting, there were brothers who were being arrested for giving the gospel of Jesus. Many of you have read about that. Now, friends, this is not in Saudi Arabia. This is in Dearborn. For simply giving the gospel of Jesus. Partners in the gospel suffer predicaments. We often have uncommon problems, but we have then the run-of-the-mill common problems too. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23, Paul wrote to this same Timothy, who's apparently been in prison for the gospel, but he wrote to him and he said to Timothy, have a little wine for your stomach's sake. You all remember reading that? He was saying, take this for medicinal purposes because of the apparent physical problem that you are having with uh, your, your stomach ailments. And so there are uncommon problems, and then there are the common problems as well. Partners in the gospel encounter problems and suffer predicaments. But thirdly, notice, verse 24, partners in the gospel are indeed regular people. Verse 24, greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Now, notice it's not just the leaders. It's not just the Green Beret types who are just really special people. It's all God's people who are involved. And further, those from Italy send you all their, their greetings. Now, now, who are they? Who are those from, from Italy? Well, it refers to native Italians who are now in another place. And they're saying hello to those back home to whom the letter was written. And so it's similar to 
We have a team who's left today to go out to Bakersfield, California. I told you I'm going to join them midweek. And we go out to Bakersfield, and let's suppose that uh, Pastor Brock from the church out in Bakersfield were to send a letter back to you all. And he were to say, those from Michigan send their greetings. You all would know who they're talking about, right? We know who's out there, and we know who's, who's with them. And that's precisely what's being said here. Now notice then, you've got all God's people, and you've got these people who are with the author of Hebrews. And they, together, are writing to these Jewish background Christians, apparently living in Italy, and who are being persecuted and are thinking about turning back. And they're being greeted by their fellow countrymen who are living in another place. Partners in the gospel are just regular folks, regular people. Now, I want to prove that to you by looking at another conclusion to another letter in your New Testament. So will you hold your finger here and turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And if you have one of the Bibles that the fellows distributed, that's page 630, page 630, will get you to Romans chapter 16. Now, in Romans chapter 16, Paul, who wrote the letter to the church at Rome, is now at the conclusion, the end. Chapter 16 is concluding his marvelous treatise on the gospel. And he sends greetings to 26 individuals. 24 of them, we have their names. And for most of them, he adds an appreciative personal reference. As you reflect on the names and the circumstances of the people that Paul greets at the end of this letter, you have to be impressed with both the unity and the diversity of the church there at Rome, showing that they're just regular people doing extraordinary things for God. Now, Romans chapter, chapter 16. And we're going to see some of the people that are mentioned here. So that we can see it's not just a certain class of people. Verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sincrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. Who is Phoebe? Well, Phoebe is apparently being entrusted by Paul to carry the letter to the Romans, to the church at Rome on his behalf. And he is saying, receive her when she comes. And here is why you should receive her, because here are the things she has done in the Lord's work to recommend her. Here is a woman, apparently a single woman, doing this marvelous thing, willing to travel from Corinth to Rome, in order to deliver the letter that Paul has written to the Roman Christians. And then you have Priscilla and Aquila, verse 3. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all of the churches are grateful, are grateful to them. And so say hello to them. Greet them. Phoebe is coming. And I know... Priscilla and Aquila are there. Now, how do I know? And how, how did they risk their lives for me? 
Well, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that Paul met Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18 in the city of Corinth. And when he left to go to, to Ephesus, that he left them to give instruction to one named Apollos. This is a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple, who are carrying on the Lord's work on Paul's behalf. And it says they risked their lives for me. They moved from Corinth to yet another city, Ephesus. And they were stalwarts in the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 19 tells us that there was a riot in the city of Ephesus because of the preaching of the great apostle. So much so that Paul's life was in danger. And most commentators believe that that's the occasion on which they risked their lives to save the neck of the apostle Paul. And now they find themselves in the city of Rome carrying out the Lord's work. I want you to notice something else about this couple. Notice whose name is mentioned first. It's Priscilla, that's the wife, and Aquila. That speaks to the fact, normally the most prominent person is mentioned first. Normally the male is mentioned first. But apparently Priscilla was a woman of, of great ability who, along with her husband Aquila, were very faithful workers, even to the point of being willing to suffer persecution. And then verse 5 says, Greet also the church that meets at their house. The Bible tells us that. They had a church that met at their house in Corinth. And now they have a church that meets at their house in Rome as well. A couple, a married couple, fully committed, but common people, carrying out uncommon work for the Lord. Greet as well, my friend, middle of verse 5, my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to trust to, to Christ in the province of Asia. Now, we don't know who this is. We simply know that this is someone who's serving now in Rome and who was at one point the uh, first convert in, the, in Asia. The chief city of Asia was none other than Ephesus, where Paul had been, where Paul was almost killed in Acts chapter 19, where Priscilla and Aquila served with him. And he was the first convert under Paul's ministry, apparently, there. Greet Mary who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. When it says my relatives, and it says that again in verse 11, it'll say that again later in the chapter. It's not saying that these are, these are my immediate family, but it's saying that these are my kinsmen, that they have Jewish background like I do. My relatives in, in, uh, in Jewish background. But they have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the sent ones, the apostles. Not in the technical sense of the, the twelve, but as those who are sent. And they were in Christ before I was. And then quickly, just notice these names of people, most of whom we don't know. Verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, who I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Now, let me just stop there. Those of the household of Aristobulus. Again, we... But this is a person who is not being commended himself and is not even being greeted, Aristobulus. You know that? It's not greet Aristobulus. It's greet those who are in his household. Now, here's why. 
Because many of the names that we are reading right now are found in inscriptions in Rome as names of slaves in the homes of Roman nobility. And apparently Aristobulus is one of those Roman nobility for whom these Christian slaves served. And so it is all those who are serving in the household of this Roman noble Aristobulus who are Christian slaves. And many of these names are associated with that. As a matter of fact, many commentators believe that Aristobulus is the grandson of Herod the Great in Rome. And greet Herodian, again of Jewish ancestry, my relative. Greet those in the household, another Roman noble, Narcissus, who are in the Lord. And then a couple more women, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Tryphosa. Sisters, undoubtedly, perhaps twin sisters. Verse 12, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Do you see how many times women are working hard in the Lord? And the word that's translated, work hard, is to exert themselves in the Lord's work. And then notice this, great Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And his mother, who has been a mother to me, who is Rufus? In Mark chapter 15 and verse 21, the Bible tells us that as Jesus was carrying his cross, he fell under the weight of the cross. You all remember that? And the Bible tells us that a man named Simon of Cyrene helped him and carried his cross for him. But Mark adds another note about this Simon of Cyrene. He says that he is the father of of Alexander and Rufus. And there is good reason to believe this is the same Rufus. Because Mark wrote his gospel either from or to Rome. And so he would have known Rufus. Known about Rufus and his association with the church of Rome. And Paul adds here, Greek Rufus, but his mother also. Who has been a mother to me? Now, why would anybody need to be a mother to Paul? Ah. Remember I said that Christians have uncommon problems, even though they're common people? And Jesus said sometimes there'll be relational issues. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8, Philippians 3 and verse 8, Paul says, I've had to leave all things behind in order to follow Christ. And apparently that included his own family. Paul needed a mother. Paul was disowned for having become a Christian. And this woman, Rufus' mother, and apparently Simon's, Simon's widow, who carried the cross for Jesus, was a mother to him. And then you have these other names that we, we don't know who they are. Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with them. And the Greek Philogus, and Julia, and Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Apparently there are churches that meet in these houses. That's why it says, and all those, all the brothers with them, and all the saints with them. And then finally ends, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Now friends, I take some time to go through that, because I want to underscore the point made in your outline. That partners in the gospel are just regular people.
people. They are regular people who are willing and desirous to do extraordinary things in the cause of Jesus Christ. And so we can never, you can never, I can never dismiss myself from the work to which the Lord has called us. You notice that there are women, there are married women, and there are single women. That there are, of course, men as well. That there are people in different stations of life. There are people who are well off. If you read later, you will have those who Paul is talking about that are with him, who are sending their greetings. It's not greet the people in Rome. It's saying, we're sending our greetings. And he mentioned someone named Erastus, who's the director of public works. This is a prominent person. And he mentions Tertius, who wrote the letter with his own hand on Paul's behalf. And Cordus, our brother in the Lord. Tertius is Latin for number three. Cordus for number four. Two slaves that don't even have names. Number three and number four send their greetings too. And so you have different genders, different stations in life, but all of them regular people carrying out the Lord's work. So partners in the gospel, friends, are just regular people. And lastly, if you look at verse 25, partners in the gospel need a common provision. In fact, you know, we're not having Sunday school. And I'm supposed to have seven more minutes. So can I have seven more minutes? Doesn't matter. I just wanted to warn you, I'm taking seven more minutes. I was gonna I was gonna hurry to point number four, but I'd like I really would like to, to point out just a, another one of these endings to these letters that is very precious to me and has a sensitivity to it that ought to move the heart of God's people as we are partners in his work. So with your indulgence, we take a look at one more passage in Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four. And the reason this one is so moving is because this is the last letter written by the great apostle. It's in this last chapter, chapter 4 of this last letter, that Paul says, the time of my departure is at hand. I have run the race, I have fought the fight. And shortly after writing this letter, the second letter to Timothy, Paul was executed for being a missionary for Jesus Christ. And so this is what he says in verse 9. Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Now can you see, here's, here's Paul, he's under arrest, he's going to die. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in the ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Bring the cloak. Why? Because winter is coming. He's going to tell Timothy, do your best to come before winter. Bring the cloak. It's getting cold here. And here's the 
here's the great apostle who has given his life to Christ, who's come to the end. Bring the coat. But he also says, and my scrolls, and especially the parchments. The scrolls are apparently the scrolls of, of books that Paul would read. And the parchments were copies of the Old Testament that he would use and things that he was writing himself that he would like to finish before his time was completely done. And you see, he's got these associates that are all listed there. One has deserted him, Demas. He's got these others who are sent out on, as emissaries on other missions in other places. He's got Luke who is with him, and he's asking Timothy to come soon. And he's saying, bring Mark with you as well, and bring these items that I need with you. Friends, do you all sense from this the importance of the Lord's work, but also the fact that it's common people who carry it out? Regular people who understand that they are in partnership in ministry. And then lastly, verse 25, in your outline, partners in the gospel need the provision, the common provision of God. Verse 25, simply, grace be with you all. In order for you, in order for me, in order for these people, to carry out the work to which the Lord has called us as partners in fellowship, koinonia. We're all a part of it. No matter what our station in life, no matter what our gender, we're all called to play a role in it. But in order for that to happen, the grace of God must be with every one of us. And that's why, almost without exception, throughout your New Testament, you have the New Testament letters beginning with something like grace to you. And ending with grace be with you. Apart from the grace of God, they could not and we cannot carry out the work to which the Lord has called us. Now I conclude by challenging you, friends, this way. In light of the fact that it is simply common people who are carrying out extraordinary for the work for the Lord in the task to which he has called us in spite of the often uncommon and, yes, common problems that we face, in light of that, let me ask you, where would you fit in the lists at the end of the letters of the New Testament? What would be said about you? What would be said about me? Would my name be found there just as a common person? Doing what the Lord has given to me to do to carry out for him? <coughs> Would your name be found there? Ask yourself what you are doing in the Lord's work now. How you are using the gifts and abilities that God has given you to carry out the work to which the Lord has called you. Ask yourself what the, and I don't mean to use harsh language, but this is what we do. We rationalize. We excuse ourselves. Ask yourself what excuses you might be using to say, that's not for me, that's for other people. Friends, do you see in the letters to the New Testament, it's not for other people, it's for us? It's what we're called to? It's the enterprise we're involved in? We are partners in the gospel? So here's what I encourage you to do. And we'll pray together and we'll be done. I encourage you to ask yourself, have I exempted myself 
from full involvement in partnership in the gospel. Saying simply that my circumstances won't allow it. My gender won't allow it. I'm just a woman. My station in life won't allow it. There are some people who just have it together and they can do that sort of thing. But the New Testament won't allow that, will it? It's everybody doing what they can to carry out the Lord's work. So the first thing is ask yourself, have I done that? Am I doing that? When I hear an announcement about a special meeting for the church family, do I immediately assume that's for other people? That's not for me. If I do, then I'm not fully engaged as a partner in the gospel. Don't exempt yourself from the work of the Lord because of your gender, because of your station in life. God doesn't. The New Testament does not. And then secondly, ask yourself, then how can my gifts and abilities be used as a full partner in the advance of the gospel? We have a ministry that's designed to help you do that, designed to identify what you are able to do with your gifts and abilities in the time that God has allowed you in your providential circumstances to be a full partner in his work. Brother Ken Rapp heads up that ministry for us. He'll be back next week. He's out on his motorcycle in Kentucky right now. And I told him to stay upright. Some of you know he fell off his motorcycle a couple years ago. He's back at it again. And Lord willing, that'll happen. And he and Vaughn and Dr. Peter will return to us. And you see Ken beginning next week. And say, Ken, tell me how I can get involved fully in the work to which the Lord has called us to carry out together. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this time to spend in these different circumstances, but yet circumstances for which we are thankful. We thank you that we have this place. We thank you that we have this time. We thank you that you have met with us, that we're able to look into the pages of your word and there be reminded of the work to which you have called us. And to see, even at the end of these, these letters, that these are sacred words Words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Words that you want us to have, and therefore we should not skip over. And help us, Lord, when we look at them, to marvel at the many people with the different profiles that they have. The different circumstances of their lives, and yet all of them active participants in the work to which you have called us. And Lord, may that then inspire us, motivate us, to give ourselves fully to this joyous work of bringing glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for every brother and sister here. If there are any here who have tended to exempt themselves because of who they are, because of their circumstance in life, Lord, I pray that today they see that in your word that didn't happen. That all of the people that you call, you call to serve. And that there are no little people in the Lord's word. That all play an absolutely important and crucial role. So I pray that you would convict us of that, and then you would motivate us to get involved and find our place within your work to bring glory to you through your church. Lord, we want to tell you that we love you because you have first loved us. We want to go this week, and we want to serve you with a life that exemplifies Christ in a way that brings honor to him. And Lord, in our church, we want to be a church that's in this community as a light and and demonstrates the character of Jesus Christ in a way that brings honor and glory to Him. Lord, help us to do that both this week and until our Lord returns. 
We pray in his name. Amen.